Welcome to Flip the Script Podcast. All right, so today we're going to continue reading from David H. Hackworth's book about face and the chapter of Hill 400. If you didn't watch Hill 400 part one, go back and watch that. Otherwise, we're going to be a little bit lost. And I'm going to go right into part two of Hill 400. But first, before you do that, hit the like button, hit the share button, send this podcast to your friends. If you're watching on YouTube, or if you're listening on one of the podcast platforms, then hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the share button, and write a review. Leave a comment. Let's get into it. Let's flip the script. This is part two of Hill 400. Green tracers from a machine gun raked our position. It was set up in a rocky outcrop near the top of the hill, firing right down Speed's throat. No way could he get his people through that. The way it stood now, they couldn't even return fire. The gun had to go. Brave Raiders, Smith and Salazar on the left, took on the deadly challenge. There was little cover and no concealed approaches to the gun, just a fold in the ground in the center of Smith's front, which the machine gun could not depress low enough to cover. Raiders' weapons laid down, good covering fire as the two volunteers crawled up the hill. I like these men, especially Smith, the Albanian, who I initially hadn't been sure was Raider material, because he got in his stripes the National Guard weekend warrior way. The funny thing was that Smith didn't think he deserved those stripes either. He was embarrassed by them, and always seemed to go out of his way to prove himself, even when it was no longer necessary. Maybe it still riled him a bit when we called him NG due to his National Guard origins. Still, by now, he didn't know that it was just a loving nickname for a brave and trusted comrade in arms. Now under fire, he and Salazar snaked through the dead space toward the gun. About 20 yards from their objective, Salazar blasted his weapon and Smith rushed forward screaming as he unleashed two large Chinese anti-tank grenades. Both hit home, exploding on impact. The machine gun and crew were blown to a million pieces. The two raiders turned and started back toward us. Then a Chinaman jumped up on the outcrop and fired a long, long burst. Both men fell. The momentum sending them tumbling into our position. Smith died in my arms. I cried as I held him. It's just a nightmare, I thought. And then I swore we'd take that damn hill. Speed jumped off as soon as the machine gun blew. Garvin picking up the reins of Smith, attacked on the left. Item Company put 60 millimeter mortar fire all over the top of the hill. We came upright under it. Speed's people hit the top like a bulldozer, closely followed by Garvin's squad. The diehard Chinamen were making a determined last stand as raiders fanned out. Savage, close fighting, and hand-to-hand combat, the bloody order of the day. That part is kind of rough, you know, so... You know, this guy Smith that, uh, you know, Hackworth, he didn't, at first he didn't know if he was a Raider material, right? He didn't know if he belonged in the Raiders. You know, he thought that because, you know, this guy came from the National Guard, you know, he's a weekend warrior. But Smith proved himself. And he didn't feel like he deserved his position either. And he was insecure about it. And he was always trying to work hard to prove himself, even when it wasn't necessary anymore. You know, and Hackworth, he liked these guys. You know, they went on a mission bravely, attacked an enemy outpost, and they completed their mission. But then a Chinese troop jumped out, mowed him down. And then they tumbled into Hackworth's position, and Smith died in his arms. 
that's a heavy thing to experience. You know, even the hardest of warriors, when their friends are killed, especially in a leadership position, you may feel like you have some type of responsibility of that. But in war, the fight continues. There's no time to mourn in war. And you have to pick up and keep on fighting. Grenade shouted Raider Mendoza, who was kneeling about three feet away from me. We went to cover. Mendoza and Neri hit the ground. I spun, but tripped and rolled down the slope. I stopped rolling about the same time as the grenade, the same place as the grenade. It was under me when it exploded. The blast propelled me into the air like a rocket. Moments later, a 160-pound ragdoll fell to the ground with a heavy thud. I could not get any air. I was choking and grasping. Horrible sucking sounds were coming out of my chest. Fire, I thought. My chest and the left side were on fire. I groaned and I tried to breathe. I figured my lungs had burst. Then I stopped moaning. It took too much energy. Hackworth is done for. The words floated down. The old man's dead. No, Speed. No, I'm not dead. F you, Jack Speed. I'm not dead. And I ain't gonna die. Not on this damn hill. I dragged myself to my feet and headed for the dock. He checked me out and got me breathing while I sent the words to Chris to take command and get a prisoner. My left arm was broken and hanging from my shoulder by ripped flesh and torn muscle. Scores of shrapnel wounds covered my burned chest, but I was alive. And for the second time, a submachine gun had saved my life, a submachine gun and good trust training. When I rolled down that hill, I tucked my Thompson into my gut as I had been trained and rolled with it under me. The weapon, not I, had taken the full impact of the explosion. Johnny Watkins drifted in. A grenade had blown the crap out of him. He said things were heating up, that Chris had been hit in the leg and speed had assumed command. I could hear the increased fire above and after a shot of morphine and a little breaker man bedside manner, he wrapped my arm in a heavy bandage and made a sling out of an empty M1 bandolier. I headed back to the fight. It was almost dawn. So Hackworth here, he's got his submachine gun tucked under him as he's rolling down this hill. And then he lands on top of a grenade. And this grenade explodes. But instead of the impact of the grenade blowing him up, the impact was on his submachine gun. And he still was blasted up into the air. And he hit the ground hard. He still had shrapnel wounds. He had his arm was broken, was hanging, and his torn muscles, and and he goes he goes to the dock to get bandaged up, puts him in a sling, and he goes back on the battlefield, back onto the fight. This is the type of warrior spirit, warrior mindset that Hackworth has. That just because he gets wounded doesn't mean he's out of the fight. He goes back in. He goes back into the fight after getting blown up by a grenade having shrapnel, his arm is hanging off by tendons and muscles. And he gets a sling on and he goes back on the battlefield. This is what I keep on saying over and over again, is that the fight is not over until you're dead. You keep the fight on in a survival situation. You keep on fighting until you can't fight anymore because you are dead. Now, 
we can think about what was going through Hackworth's mind here. He's in a leadership position. And he has a responsibility to his men. So imagine if their leader, their commander, dies. Or gets seriously wounded and is taken out of the fight. Even though somebody else steps up. He told another guy to take command temporarily. But how do you think his men would perform? He decided to lead from the front and go back into the fight. So that all of his men, if they get wounded, then they know they they could go back into the fight. Hackworth just got blown up by a grenade. And they too can go back into the fight. Just because they're wounded doesn't mean that they're out of the fight. The warrior mindset, warrior spirit to continue the fight. All right, let's continue. Let's flip the script. The Chinese have been counterattacking since I'd been hit. Only now was the assault beginning to falter. Raiders all wounded have been pushed back and they leered near the crest of the hill and cut the enemy down as they came over the top. I picked up a little M2 carbine. It was nothing like my Thompson, now a black and twisted mess, but I could fire it like a pistol in my one good hand and I joined in the fray. <laughs> All right, so Hackworth, it picks up an M2 carbine. You know, it's your basic uh, weapon. And, you know, he's like, I could use one hand and lift this rifle up, and I could fire it like a pistol to get back in the fight. This guy is a warrior, man. So he joined in the fray. It was getting light enough to see now. To my right lay Chief Denny and ex-Easy Trooper Heron. Both had been hit. Denny in both arms and Heron down in the head wound. Heron couldn't see and Denny couldn't shoot, so the Oklahoma Cowboy and the Arizona Indian Brave had formed a potsy of one. Denny gave directions while Heron fired the weapon. Redman, Tex Garvin, was over on the left, both legs badly blasted by shot. He couldn't move, but he kept down effective fire calmly and deliberately as if he were in the KD range at Camp Pendleton striking for a United States Marine Corps expert badge. Neary crawled over me with a message from Colonel Sloan. Put Crispo in command and get yourself down to item. You never got that message, Neary, I snapped. But hack, he was serious. Shut off the radio. All right, so as we saw, as I just said, Hackworth's men get, get injured. And, you know, this guy, Denny, and I forgot the other guy's name, Denny and, uh, Denny and Heron, you know, they're both hurt pretty bad. Denny can't see and Heron couldn't shoot or maybe it was the other way around. doesn't matter. So what they did was they teamed up together. One was calling, one was a spotter while the other one could shoot. <laughs> this is cover and move, right? Man, this is an amazing story, man. All right. So then uh, he gets a, Hackworth gets a call from the colonel on the radio and tells him to get down back to item company, get back to rear and have somebody else take command. So Hackworth tells the radio operator to say that he never got that message. He never received that message. And then, you know, the radio operator says, hack, you know, this is, he, he sounds serious. And Hackworth tells him to shut off the radio. All right. So all colonels are serious. 
but there was nothing Sloan or anyone could have done for us right now. We needed to know what the hell was happening. It seemed as if we'd already wiped out the whole Chinese army and the bastards were still coming. I asked Neri if the guys had gotten a prisoner yet. He replied in the negative and slipped into a cordite dawn. I backed off from the top of the hill to take a moment to examine the situation. All but a handful of raiders had been hit, most twice and more than 25 wounded, and at last count, five dead, including the boy who tried to quit at the LD, had he known something I hadn't. Most of our leaders were down. Speed had been shot in the belly and was shooting with one hand, holding his guts with the other. We were totally dependent on captured weapons. Our ammo supply was gone. We reached a fish-and-cut-bait situation. So, Speed gets shot in the stomach and his guts are hanging out. And he's not going down. He's not laying there to die. He's holding his guts in with one hand while he's firing with the other. That's the warrior mindset. That's the warrior spirit. He's not dead yet, even though his guts are falling out. He's still in the fight. All right, let's flip the script. Now they're just picking up weapons from dead bodies because their ammos have gone out, right? There is seldom a Mexican standoff in battle. You either win or lose. And in many fights, the commander reaches to a point where he thinks he's lost. He sees only losses. And he knows only his own situation, not the enemy's. The carnage surrounding him erodes his confidence. Wellington at Waterloo thought he'd lost. So did Easy Company under Desiderio. And in the fight on the hill up north, Grant summoned up the fleeing best at Fort Donaldson during the Civil War. Either side was ready to give up if the other showed a bold front. Well, we'd certainly shown a bold front, but so had the men from China. So that's interesting take that he says, right? He says, you either win or you lose in battle. There's no Mexican standoff. And he said that a lot of leaders, a lot of commanders, you know, they think that they they think that they lost the fight. They look at the carnage laying around them. They look at the wounded. They look at the dead around them. But they don't see what the enemy side looks like. And that usually he gave examples of past wars where that was the situation where both commanders were suffered heavy losses and both thought that they were losing. And if the one that the side that won was the side that showed a bold front. Because then Going back to Sun Tzu, if you haven't watched uh, my episodes on Sun Tzu, watch that. It's about deception, right? So even if you are having, even if you're suffering from massive casualties and wounded, so is the enemy. And they're about ready to give up just as much as you are. And if you show that bold front, that might be enough to push them over the edge to surrender or give up. All right, so let's continue. So Neri appeared again, this time carrying an unconscious little Chinaman. I found out later that after I told him we needed a prisoner, he had taken as a personal assignment. He charged up the hill and stormed the top unarmed. Once in the enemy position, he smashed this Chinaman on the head with his fist and hoof-footed it back. Unfortunately, the POW died before we got the skinny. He kept trying to pull off one of the grenades off of Neri's belt on the way back, and Neri had stopped him, obviously a little too hard. So we got another prisoner, but then, just when we needed him most, our interpreter Kim, Upsu, decided to bug out. Speed saw him running down the hill. 
He stopped him. I go, I go, said Kim, and edged away. Jack didn't know what to do. He was good and ready to waste him. Instead, he leveled his weapon and shot off Kim's hand. This persuasive little tactic worked. As we bandaged him up, Kim decided he liked our company after all. The word from the POW was just what we wanted to hear. Our artillery had clobbered the enemy reinforcing units. Intelligence had been off by about 300 men in terms of the enemy's strength on Hill 400. The Chinamen were reinforcing through a tunnel trench network on the reverse slope, which ran through the hill 419 behind. And no one on the hill had any fight left in them. I told Jimmy and the others to round up every gun that they could, limp or crawl. We're going to storm the top. 20 bloodied and battered raiders soon crested the hill. Its surface was covering the enemy dead. The Chinese defenders who hadn't been killed on position had chanced running the gauntlet of artillery shot, which continued to blast the back of the hill. Judging from the carnage on the reverse slope, few had made it, but an intact Bren gun crew was still raising hell among the tired band. There were more casualties until Jimmy and Evans went on the attack. They killed the crew, but paid the price. Jimmy lay in a broken reed next to the gun. He'd taken a shot in the face and ripped through his right eye and lower jaw. Evans lay nearby, staring at Jimmy with wide, lifeless eyes and a satisfied look on his heavy, mustached face. It was the look of a winner. He probably just said to Jimmy, Well, we got that SOB before a burst of enemy fire, most likely the last of the fight. Hit him full on the chest and ripped the life out of him. Neary switched on his radio to report the capture of Hill 400. Relief was en route. He was told, dispatched by a worried Colonel Sloan, when we went off the air, Oh, say can you see? I thought, as in the dull light of morning, we collected our scattered and broken fighters from the blood-soaked American-held hill. Breakerman was kneeling over Jimmy, pumping life into him. Some piece of cake. We had seven killed in action, 29 wounded in action, and one raider, Salazar, missing. The only two raiders who were not hit were Lipka and Sovereign, the two gunners. The machine guns had been out of range of the frags that had depleted our ranks. It was a strange turnabout. Normally, the gunners ride in the death seat. All right, so we're going to stop here for today. We're going to pick up next time for part three of Hill 400, which will be the last part. And listen, there's a lot of lessons to be learned in this. This book is 800 pages. I suggest you go out and get it. There's a lot of lessons to be learned. Um, I love reading war stories. So obviously, if you're watching this or if you're listening to this, then you do too. So I'll continue to do this as long as you keep watching and keep listening. Hit that subscribe button. Hit the like button. Hit the share button. And we'll go on a journey together. And just remember that as we saw today, that the fight is not over. Keep trucking. No matter what happens, you keep fighting. Your guts are hanging out of your stomach. You could still fire with your other hand. Hold your guts in and still fire with the other hand until it's over. Every single one of these men were wounded except for the two gunners and they all continued to fight and they took that hill from the Chinese. That's because they had the warrior mindset and the warrior spirit inside of them. And you do too. And you just have to know how to harness it and bring it out and use it when you need to. Continue watching this podcast and you will understand how
and continue on this journey with me and we will develop the warrior mindset together. This flip the script podcast out.